how did we think about Yes Network that was supposed to be broadcasting live games in that kind of instance? Nobody underwrote a pandemic going into that. Clearly, none of us had any idea about that. But we thought carefully about the cash yield in that business, the liquidity on the balance sheet, and the low leverage on the way in. Same thing with Fenway. We technically closed Fenway our investment in Fenway and underwrote it in the middle of the pandemic when there were no live fans in the stands. Hello and welcome back to Invisible Capital, a podcast on the private markets. I'm Adam Lewis, a reporter for PitchBook News. And I'm Alexander Davis, editor-in-chief of PitchBook News. And this week... We have a conversation between Adam and Rob Klein of Redbird Capital. And Adam, you guys were talking about one of your favorite subjects. That's right. We are talking sports with Rob, who was previously at JP Morgan and has since joined Redbird to oversee their PE sports investing strategy as you know, private equity tries to get in the game here. Ah, that pun hurts. Before we get to that, we are also excited to welcome our colleague, James Thorne. And James is going to be talking about just a a steady barrage of news coming out of China. James, welcome. Hey, Alec. Happy to be here. So you've been following the the turmoil over uh, China's crackdown on, on all things tech. But for listeners who have missed it, catch us up on what is going on and what should we make of all this? Yeah, so I think the first thing to know is that this is really uh, a trend that's been building for years, but it really started to turn a corner uh, with Ant's failed IPO last year. And more recently, you know, we saw this huge fallout in the, the for-profit tutoring industry. Some very valuable companies basically just cratered, lost 90% of their market cap uh, pretty much overnight. And now you're starting to see a lot of the regulations roll out. You know, China had been talking about what they were going to do for a long time, doing a lot of high-level signaling, but now it's it's starting to get down to the brass tacks of, of what this new regulatory regime is going to look like. And it's, it's really comprehensive. It's really hard to keep track of everything. There's an element of consumer protection, of data privacy, of national security. And just last Friday, uh, the Wall Street Journal reported that China could ban U.S. IPOs for companies that handle lots of consumer data. So it's really signaling that the hits are going to just keep coming. And what kind of maybe chilling effect might we expect when it comes to deal making in, in, in Chinese private companies, particularly for global investors? Yeah, so I think one of the first things to note is we have not seen deal making stop or, or even really decline significantly in China. We're definitely off of levels we saw earlier this year, but we're pretty much in line with the flow of deals that we've been seeing since the start of, of 2020. But recently, I actually spoke to one international investor who has a presence in China. It's Telstra Ventures. They're the VC arm of Telstra, which is a, an Australian telecom giant akin to AT&T. And you know, they've been there for the last six years. And their perspective is that this is really kind of the end of the wild, wild west of consumer technology in China. They really see enterprise tech as the next big thing coming out of the consumer tech wave that we've seen over really the last two decades. And I think this really ties into something that the Chinese government wants, which is to improve the efficiency of markets, improve the livelihoods of people. And it's really trying to discourage the approach to 
technology innovation that brings a little bit of tech into the picture, but is really about spending marketing money, grabbing market share kind of faster than the established incumbents can innovate. And I think the, the other thing that I took away from the from the call with them was, you know, this is not going to go on forever, but we're probably going to continue to see turmoil for about the next year or so. But after that, there should be enough clarity in the marketplace where investors can maybe go back into some of the sectors that they're currently probably pretty <laughs> pretty scared of, including things like consumer tech that deals with consumer data, cybersecurity, that sort of thing. James, Gary Gensler is somebody we've talked about a little bit on the podcast and uh, c- continues to kind of reemerge when it comes to regulatory scrutiny of either SPACs or, or China. Um, how is the U.S. approaching, you know, uh, the Chinese attitude towards, you know, some of these tech companies? Yeah, Chinese companies are definitely between a rock and a hard place. Gensler, obviously chair of the SEC, recently they expanded some disclosure requirements for currently listed uh, Chinese companies. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, they had come out with similar guidance for for companies that were looking to go public in the U.S. Uh, But generally speaking, I mean, companies are in a really tough place. If you're a Chinese company, the the expectations are rising both domestically and in the U.S. markets, which, you know, for a long time has been kind of the preferred place to go public if you are uh, a top performing Chinese company. So, I don't really envy, uh, especially you know, CFOs at, at the top Chinese firms. This is this is a very difficult spot to be in. Yeah, it seems like they're going to either have to open up their books completely or, or get out within the next few years. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of nuance to that, but um, uh, you know, the, the Chinese government is is worried about um, you know data on Chinese citizens getting out. Uh, the U.S. is very worried about data on U.S. <laughs> citizens uh, being kind of turned over to the Chinese government. Uh, And then there's obviously like, you know, a lot of of other national security, cybersecurity, um, you know, protecting business secrets, that kind of thing. So everyone wants to kind of either know more or make sure the other side knows less. Mm -hmm. And and that's a difficult uh, expectations to juggle, I should say. Yeah, I I for one know that I have already given all of my data uh, inadvertently to the Somebody in China through my uh, scrolling on TikTok during the pandemic. So, uh, yeah, they, they, I'm sure I'm not alone. They know me better than I know myself sometimes, I think. <laughs> exactly. Well, this is certainly not the last we'll be talking about how these new regulations in China and maybe the US are uh, shaking up the VC ecosystem. Uh, you can find links to James's coverage at pitchbook.com slash podcast. And after the break, we're going to jump right into your conversation, Adam, that you had with Rob Klein of Redbird Capital. Partner with PitchBook Media to reach thousands of C-suite executives, managing directors, and industry leaders who are driving change within the capital markets. Share your firm's expertise or spotlight key insights with an actively growing audience across multiple channels, including the Daily Pitch newsletter, market-leading industry reports like the PitchBook NVCA Venture Monitor, and this podcast. Visit pitchbook.com slash ad to learn more. Certainly, Redbird has been in the news a lot here over the past few months for making this push into pro sports investing. We'll get into the specific deals later, but you know, just broadly, what what do you think is driving, you know, this institutional 
investors now getting involved in, in the pro sports arena. It seems like it's really picked up here over the past few years. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely picked up. Maybe I'll, I'll spend a moment or two on, on Redbird, put us into context and then we can okay. talk about that. Yeah. That sounds um, good. Our, our firms, I, I think it is important for listeners to understand who we are and how sports fits into it. We, 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 Adam invest in four sectors. We're in sports, TMT, consumer and financial services. And those sectors feed each other. And there's a synergy between those two sectors. And so when we get into sports, I'll explain more what that means. Um, we were founded by a gentleman by the name of Jerry Cardinal, who's the founder, CIO, CEO of our firm. Jerry spent um, 20 plus years at Goldman Sachs as a partner investing in their private equity area, really building businesses alongside entrepreneurs, founders, and family offices. And so that is who we are. That is what drives us and drives our sourcing. Why is that important to answer your question is as follows. Jerry was part of a team that actually founded and created the Yes Network, which broadcasts the Yankee games here in New York and was really the first regional sports network to lead the way doing a lot of those media deals down the road. He also founded a company called Legends Hospitality with Jerry Jones when the New York Yankees were building their stadium, the Dallas Cowboys were being were building their stadium. And so sports for us is actually a continuation of what he's done his whole career. And so when we talk about like why sports seems to be hot and sports investing is hot, we'll get into like what we do and, and how that foots with the rest of the industry. But but sports for us is not a new activity. Yeah. So this was kind of a natural. This was na- this was a natural, I guess, progression in a way. A hundred percent. Okay. And so even even before I got here four years ago, Jerry had hired a, a gentleman by the name of Alec Shiner. Alec was was formerly, you know, a very senior senior professional inside the Dallas Cowboys and had built the business side of sports organizations before. And so without commenting on what other people are doing, because I, I think what many of these other folks are doing are, are actually really smart strategies in and around a, in an area that does have a fair amount of dislocation and, and requires professional management. I'll tell you what we do, and then it'll frame kind of the, the rest of the sports PE landscape. Mm-hmm. Very simply put, we partner with rights holders to find businesses that are undervalued or under monetized. And we help them build those businesses to create a company with lasting terminal value. So we are not typically team buyers where we take a stake in a team. We're usually looking to help grow that franchise and grow that business. What is a rights holder? It could be a team owner, but it's also a media rights owner. It could be concessions, food and beverage, ticketing, live events. It could be anything in that ecosystem. So I'll give you a couple of examples of of what that actually means, and it'll bring it to life a little bit more. We built a company with the NFL called On Location Experiences, where the league came to us and said, we have 20% of the the Super Bowl ticket inventory every year. We'd like to figure out how to commercialize a business around it. We partnered with the NFL took EBITDA from seven to 60 million over two and a half years, ultimately sold the business at a 2.4 X just before the pandemic. And we did that in a way where we created a live experiences business around the ticketing, where we gave our customers, you know, five-star treatment. We would 
bring them to the location. We would entertain them with private concerts, put them on the field. When the players come out, those those fans in the stands doing snow angels in the confetti at the end of the game, <laughs> those those are our customers. And uh, and the nice. and the idea must be nice. And the yeah. idea was we 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 took that from one event to 150. And we did that for sporting, different sporting events and music festivals and concerts and U.S. Open tennis and the final four. And so we look at sport as this area where there are a lot of those kind of opportunities where you can build a business alongside a key rights holder like the NFL and create something really interesting for another buyer on the back end. Yeah. So from what it sounds like you're saying, you guys kind of differentiate yourself by really getting in with the companies, you know, by, by really partnering with them. Because a lot of the sports deals that I've covered and, and seen so far, it's like the firms take a real passive, you know, stake and they're not really involved in, in operations, you know, from, from what I can tell. Yeah, it's a, it's a it goes to the larger thesis and question that you asked about why is there so much more ink around this and why are people getting to it? There are lots of different ways to play it. So there there is the angle of other firms who will take a minority stake in a team because they're able to buy it at a discount because some of the existing owners want liquidity. And that's a valid strategy. We don't really do that at Redbird, not because we think it's not a valid strategy, but because we actually prefer to have some area where we have influence control, shared control, outright control, where we can influence that outcome and create the business. And so we, we clearly did it with on location. We also own a company now, Adam, called One Team Partners, where we partnered with the NFL and Major League Baseball Players Association around their collective rights. And so think about things like the Madden video game for football, the show video game for baseball, NFTs, trading cards, things like that, where, you know, again, you have a rights holder that has a series of rights where there's a lot of value that can be unlocked. That's the kind of thing that we really pile into and gravitate toward. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And then, of course, the big deal this year, maybe the most high profile in your firm's history. I hope that's not an overstatement, <laughs> but partnering with 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 Fenway Sports Group, buying a stake in the parent company of the Red Sox, Liverpool FC, uh, Roush racing, right? And NESN. And I, I'm probably missing a, a couple other things, but how did that deal come together? I mean, that is, this is like, this is a milestone, I guess, in, in private equity and sports investing. Yeah. Well, you're yeah, very kind words. So we, we, I appreciate that and appreciate you saying that this is a case of some of the best assets in sports with some of the best operators in sports. And so this is not the case of a mismanaged business or an undermanaged business. This is the case of, of something that's already really great, where you have this global platform of premium assets with great management in Boston and, and in Liverpool with the businesses that you mentioned in between. And, and our concept is to really help them grow. And so we are involved in the strategic growth committee. We are involved on their board. We have active dialogue about M&A, about real estate, about expansion, about what to do with the media rights and, and where that goes. We think a lot about streaming. We think a lot about gaming and all the things that come with that. And ultimately, I think this can be a much bigger, broader platform. And we're really doing it together in concert with them. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty tight partnership. Can you explain how LeBron is involved? Because it's a little, I mean, he joined Fenway Sports Group as an owner, right? At, when this investment, you know, when it closed or if it's still, has yeah. it closed? Is it closed officially? I know the agreement has, is there. Our investment in, in Fenway? Yeah. 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 Okay. We, it's, we, it's closed. We, yeah, we closed. 
Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And then and LeBron and Maverick Carter are part owners in that entity. Yeah. There, there is uh, w- without going into into too much of the of the inside baseball, no pun intended. Okay. Um, there, there, there is actually a pretty long history between LeBron and Maverick and and the and the principals at Fenway, and there have always been things that we that we can and should be doing together. And this 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 involvement helps to to foster that going forward. Gotcha, gotcha. Just a yeah, history you, with the partners. You don't see LeBron private equity and the you know the Boston Red Sox and and you know PE coverage every day. Certainly when that yeah, when this, came this, across my inbox, I was you know you, you got to write about that. I'm a former sports writer. So. <laughs> <laughs> this was more of a pre-existing relationship between okay. many of the founders. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. You've seen the athletes get more involved, I guess, out here over the past few years in, in the VC and PE landscape. So for sure. Um, Another sure. kind of example of, yeah, Redbird leading the way sure. with these sort of partnerships. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, we sort of take a holistic view, Adam, in in sports. And we can talk about the other things we do in, in the other sectors, too. If you'd like, we take a holistic view in sports, right? So in this fund, we're investing out of our third fund right now. It's a $2.6 billion pool of capital. It's about a third in sports. When you break out the sports properties, we own a, a piece of the Yes Network with the Steinbrenner family and Amazon. We own a piece of Fenway Sports Group, obviously, with with their management team and ownership. We own the XFL, which we bought out of a bankruptcy with Dwayne Johnson and Danny Garcia. We own one team partners where we have the agreements with folks like EA around video games and Panini with trading cards. We did a SPAC with Billy Bean and Luke Bourne. So you, you, you sort of go down the list of the things that we've done. And then you start to think, where do these companies help each other? How do they help each other grow? So we think now that I've gone through assets, we think about things like content and distribution. Okay, well, we have premium content with Yes Network and with NESN. We have premium content in Skydance, which is our business that we own with David Ellison that's focused on predominantly Netflix, Apple, Amazon, and premium content there. How do those two things feed each other? How do they work together in a direct consumer world, in a streaming world? And it's really interesting to see this group of companies that's not, it doesn't look like a group of companies that are single line items in a PE fund that are unrelated. It actually looks more like Liberty Media, right. where you have a lot of different content and properties coming together that should be feeding each other to create value. So it's so it goes back to your question, like how do you think about sports and what's going on with with minority owners and passive owners versus active? We we sort of think about this as an ecosystem that's closed and how we can help these companies create value with each other. And live sports, I mean, that is kind of like the final, I guess, frontier that's holding, you know, cable news, right? That it, that's really keeping cable news sort of, I don't want to say alive, afloat, but I mean that this is the most this is kind of the hottest, I guess, property, the hottest product really remaining, right? To have exclusivity to that has, has got to be, you know, it's only getting more valuable. Yeah, I think if if you extrapolate your question, it's more about the value of premium content today. So if you look at what's going on with the content wars and how much folks like Netflix are spending on content, it's not too dissimilar, right? Like, what is what is premium content mean? Well, we know that in the New York market, Yankee games are really sticky content, right? Live Yankee games are really sticky content. It's a very low churn customer base. Whether those customers are getting it through terrestrial channels, you know, over cable versus streaming, and so 
the, the concept is what can you do with that content? How can you create value? We've thought about things like putting some of these regional sports networks that we own together and creating a bigger RSN. We think a lot about direct consumer. We think a lot about what's going on with legalization of sports gaming in certain markets and certain cities and using our RSN and streaming platforms for that. And so it's not too dissimilar to Netflix mm-hmm. owning some of this content and driving a subscriber base. That's entirely how we're thinking about live content in sports. Right. What are some of the risks with investing in, in the sports world? I mean, you have seen some some blowback from you know fans, from leagues about kind of the, you know, push towards more financialization, even though it's already here. But in some deals, not yours, of course, but have fallen apart. Um, is that is that a risk that you guys consider before you, you know, when you're doing due diligence? And yeah, I'll tell you the way Jerry invested at Goldman and the way we invest here is an extension of that. We call it success based investing. And so when we think about downside risk, we're generally looking to generate a two and a half times or better over a four to six year hold. And on the downside, we're generally looking to get our cost basis back through some form of either contractual cash flow or structure in a deal. So when you ask, what are the risks? Okay, well, we had a pandemic. We had a lack of live sports for a long time. We had no fans in the stands. How did we think about Yes Network that was supposed to be broadcasting live games in that kind of instance? Nobody underwrote a pandemic going into that. Clearly, none of us had any idea about that. But we thought carefully about the cash yield in that business, the liquidity on the balance sheet, and the low leverage on the way in. Same thing with Fenway. We technically closed Fenway, our investment in Fenway, and underwrote it in the middle of the pandemic when there were no live fans in the stands. And so you think a lot about what is the stickiness of the season ticket subscriber base when things come back? What do the cash flows look like from the RSNs? And so, you know, for us, we think about life in a much shorter band of outcomes where Our worst case should be around cost back and our best case may never be a 10x, but hopefully it's in that two and a half to three and a half X zone. We don't like taking binary risk. We don't like taking tech risk. We don't like taking, you know, team specific risk or market specific risk. And that's, I think, ultimately where people get in trouble. Uh, Do you guys use a lot of leverage for these deals? We don't. Generally speaking, you know, we, we, we avoid auction processes and sale processes, which which for folks who know us well and have done their work, you can sort of look in our portfolio and, and everything sort of comes to us from an entrepreneur or partner looking to solve a problem or looking to grow. And incumbent in, in that, incumbent for us in that is creating a capital structure that we can grow into. So if we do lever a transaction, usually we're levering two or three years in after we're very comfortable with the business, after there's cash flow, and after we can feel good about having that cash flow support the leverage. We're not big users of financial leverage. Gotcha. And when you say, is are you referring to like a dividend recapitalization you would do two or three years in with? Correct. Uh, with it when you own a portfolio company. Gotcha. Correct. Are, are those risky? I, he- I hear about, you know, I hear both sides of that uh, kind of argument sometimes uh, with, you know, private equity you know, taking a little debt out. I guess you're you're paying yourselves and you're paying your institutional investors when you do that, right? Yeah, the answer is it depends like everything else. You know, I I think the way we think about life, I mean, one team partners is a good example. 
you know, we have zero leverage on that company. Mm -hmm. That company is run rating now in excess of a hundred million dollars of EBITDA. And so the reason I say it depends is like, look, if we decided we were going to, we were going to pay ourselves a dividend, what would be a prudent amount so that we're not over leveraged in the event something bad happens to the company. And so that's how we think about life. We don't really, when we underwrite our two and a half times multiple of money, we don't underwrite multiple expansion in our deals. And we don't include, you know, a lot of financial leverage to get there. It's really about organic business building. You touched a little bit on the pandemic. There is one of the risks. Obviously, nobody could have foreseen. Uh, or I mean, maybe some scientists could have foreseen the event coming, but not something you would necessarily <laughs> write into. You know, when you're doing due diligence, like what if a pandemic happens? What will, yeah. what, will what will be the impact if there's no, you know, live sports for, you know, six months? But. Uh, in some ways, it seems like that has made private equity firms like yourselves more valuable. You know, the the thought of bringing in a strategic partner, it, it's become almost an obvious way to go for for a lot of these teams and leagues. And um, just what what was the impact of that pandemic? I guess on your guys's uh, on your deal flow on your business. I mean, uh, and you've obviously emerged from it doing doing quite well. But uh, yeah, what, what what's it been like? Yeah. Fair question for everybody, right? <laughs> Maybe not, too not just, not, yeah, right. Not, not, <laughs> not just investors and what we do. Um, look, we, we actually wound up deploying a fair amount of capital during the pandemic. So we, we used the uncertainty around the pandemic and lack of fans in the stands to put bets on that we thought would be smarter long-term bets based on things like long-term contractual cash flow and or structure. And so we invested in a business called Main Event on the consumer side of our business where comp stores, you know, same store sales for the same week, year over year, up over 60%. We invested in another consumer business called JetLinks, where it's also performing quite well. We closed Fenway Sports Group during that period of time. So, you know, during periods of dislocation, whether it's a pandemic or a market pullback, and this is something that, you know, I saw really effective when I was at JP Morgan, if you're able to have the courage of your conviction to put capital out and you can sit across the table from a founder or an entrepreneur and say, I will be there for you and I'm here for you right now, it's actually, Adam, extraordinarily powerful. Because if they know that you're with them and you want to build a long-term business with them over the next four or five, six years, and you're with them in the middle of a pandemic, they're going to trust you and, and go with you. And so I hope we come, came out stronger, I think, and I believe that we came out stronger out of the pandemic for it. Um, and having the courage of our conviction when we did, um, you know, is, is, I think, paying off for us now with some of these assets. Yeah. Speaking of, uh, you know, companies impacted by the pandemic, you guys bought the XFL, as you mentioned, with uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, uh, our future president, perhaps. But uh, uh, yeah, why, why, inv why invest in the XFL? It's been I mean, as the skeptic, sports skeptic in me, you know, has we've seen a couple different iterations of it. Um, I think your guys plan is to launch it again in, in 2023. Uh, what's, what's the thesis, I guess, behind this investment? Why do you think it can succeed? I guess this is, will be like the third version of it, right? Yeah. So you, you probably read as well when we did the deal and, and made the investment, we bought it as, as part of a bankruptcy process. And mm -hmm. so, um, we, we came in with Dwayne and his partner, Danny Garcia, who by the way is she's, she's an outstanding business person too, in her own right. And the idea, Adam, is to create a, a, a live entertainment and global production and media company that's rooted in live football. There is 
and and this is not just us as others have seen and said this there is demand for spring football for a, le- a legitimate spring football product we think this is a year-round entertainment company with spring football at its roots uh, we delayed it, you know, clearly to make sure the foundations are in place. And when I say foundations, we're talking about things like media rights and distribution and sponsorship and franchises in different markets and what families or institutions may want to participate in franchises. And on a risk adjusted basis, we we don't have a ton of capital deployed yet to it, but we have capital earmarked. And that's what success based investing means is is like, look, we're going to deploy a lot more capital if we have a clear line of sight into making sure the cash flow covers whatever larger investment we make in the asset. Jerry is really close to this one. He spends a lot of time with Dwayne and Danny personally, as well as the league and and our and our stakeholders trying to, to think through what the right steps are. And the idea here is to 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 go slowly so that you don't skip steps and don't make mistakes so that you can really create something of value. I don't have to tell you, Dwayne's social media presence is like second to none on the planet. It's going to yep. be a global business. We're based in North America. It, you will, I, I would not be surprised if you saw sort of a global footprint coming out of this thing. Yeah. And, you know, I followed the the second version of the XFL, the Seattle Dragons, my hometown. Uh, I, I watched a bunch of their games and it was just it was unfortunate that the pandemic happened when it did for the XFL, because it seemed like that they were kind of starting to hit their stride. And that was with even without, you know, with you guys partnering with them. So I have to imagine you're pretty excited about about, yeah, really building the infrastructure. Have you picked a commissioner? Oh, 100%. Like it, how, how far along are you? It's pretty it's pretty much in its infancy, right? Okay. It's early. It's early. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, if, uh, if you need anybody, <laughs> give me a call. I've, I've got I a will. lot of ideas. I've got a lot of ideas. Uh, I love it. I, I kid. It. I kid. Um, uh, one other kind of, I guess, offbeat question I had for you is, is how close is Redbird monitoring kind of what's going on with the NCAA and, and um, you know, NIL rights and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the move to, you know, let athletes profit off their name image likeness and um, you've seen some you know activity there with institutional investors maybe rumored for giving loans to schools during the pandemic other perhaps opportunities for athletes to, to brand themselves uh, and make make a little money but is, is that an area that redbird's interested in or maybe not so much it's an area we know really well right i yeah. mean going back to our one team partners business. That is what one team partners does. So the, the commercial agreements that we have with the national football league players association, the major league baseball players association, WNBA and, and a bunch of other players associations. Those are effectively the unions. Okay. When you are an NFL player, anything that involves more than six athletes, you're agreeing in, in according to your collective bargaining agreement, you're agreeing to sign your rights over to your name, image, image and likeness to the union. Gotcha. So when you see a player's face on the cover of the Madden video game, he is getting the same check that a kicker might be getting for participation in that. So the unions drive that value for the players collectively. With NCAA, it's still emerging, and I think they're still figuring it out. And so I think you'll you'll have you'll have individual players doing their own thing locally in certain markets, and then you'll have more marquee players that are going to attract bigger brands. And I think there's a world that still has to negotiate itself and figure out. But we're super close to it, and we think it's super interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's it just kind of seems like the wild west right now. I mean, you see, just occasion, early, yeah, it very yeah. early, right? 
It's uh, yeah. the Miami Hurricanes. Every player getting you know a huge donation from that from that owner in in Miami. And yeah, I can't even imagine what's what's coming down the coming down the pike here over the next few years. I'm yeah. I'm a Washington State alum, which is a small school, so oh, we're, yeah. we're we're very much on the uh, on the outside looking in with the big money guys. But uh, I like to follow it nonetheless. Um, I think it's I think it's a it's a very relevant question that's going to become more relevant over the next couple of years. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, yeah. hey, that's that's all I got for you today. I, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to answer a few questions. No, I, I appreciate it too. I think next time I'd love to talk to you more about cricket and what we're doing over there. And, and that's very interesting. Yes, we, hey, let's and, do it. Okay. Yeah. Tell, tell us about your investment in, and pronounce the team name for me. So I don't flub it in front of the, our thousands sure. of listeners. Sure. So, so we, we made an investment in a club called the Rajasthan Royals in the Indian cricket premier league, the IPL. And, um, th- this is one Adam where I think it's a really interesting watch this space. The IPL isn't really broadly known here in the US. The IPL has eight clubs. So it's a closed infrastructure. It's a closed league, which is which is different than than some of the other leagues that you see and, and some of the other teams. What it means is that the IPL is actually very profitable. Every club in the league is profitable because it's a closed league. And the only real other league that's closed and profitable like that is the NFL. We invested in the media in in the Royals. Media rights in the IPL have grown five x since the wow. last renewal in 2017. The media rights are currently owned by Disney through their Hotstar platform. That accounts for 30 percent of all paid Disney Plus subscribers globally. Wow! And so we just think we we have something really interesting here on our hands. Clearly, we think the media rights are going to be way more valuable on the renewal in 22. You have population growth, obviously, and 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 tremendous pent up demand and interest in viewing and streaming cricket globally. It's our first investment in cricket. It's our first investment in India, but it's a logical extension of like the analytical work we do with Toulouse our football club in in France and our partnership with Billy Bean and Luke Bourne on the analytics side. And so that's a space where I think you'll see us. And frankly, I, I think you'll see some other PE firms getting involved over there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cricket, obviously, you mentioned it's not big in the U.S., but it's hugely popular in India and, and even worldwide. And, you know, the games can last days. So that is a very attentive audience. If you can. Well, you so know, it's, if, it's interesting. You can tap into it's, that market, right? You got they take tea breaks. Uh, you know, yeah, it's interesting that you say that the IPL part of the value proposition of the IPL is actually to shorten the games and have a defined okay. amount of time so that they can't last for days so that the <laughs> eyeballs do stay on the game. So you nailed gotcha, it. You gotcha. nailed it. Yeah. hundred percent. You nailed it. Well, yeah, we will, we will certainly watch, you know, as you guys kind of branch out into these, into these areas. Cause uh, yeah, some really cool, innovative stuff that's going on. Awesome. Awesome. Look, I appreciate your time, you know, and, and, and the ability to speak to you and your listeners and, and, you know, we think the world of, of you all, obviously, and, um, anytime, you know, we can be of help to you, whether it's, we didn't talk about fig or any of the other stuff we do. We, we talked about sports today, but anything we can do to help you, yeah, uh, we're always here. Awesome. Awesome. I appreciate it, Rob. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Invisible Capital. For show notes and links to relevant reports and articles, visit pitchbook.com slash podcast. I'm Adam Lewis. And I'm Alexander Davis. Until next time, thanks. 
Invisible Capital is a production of PitchBook. Executive produced by Kai Yao. Hosted by Alexander Davis and Adam Lewis. Cover art by Landon Early. Subscribe to Invisible Capital on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, visit pitchbook.com slash podcast. <laughs>